This morning's text is from Daniel 11 and 12. Hear the word of the Lord. As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall, she shall retain, not retain, the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and some years, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times many shall arise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, and even his best troops, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall, and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time, 
and he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall rise against him, or come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. The wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many <clears throat> shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined purified and made white until the time of the end for it still awaits the appointed time and the king shall do as he wills he shall exalt himself magnify himself above every god and speak astonishing things against the god of gods he shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done he shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women he shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his father did not know, shall, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand. Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of treasures of gold and of silver and all precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious mount, holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. At the time shall arise Michael, the great prince who is in charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was nation until till that time. At that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? 
And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, Oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed into the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way to the end, and you shall rest, and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. We need it. We, we love it. And we know that it is eternal. And we know that it is truth. And so we pray that you would use it now to conform us to the image of your son. We pray that you, your spirit would use it now to give us exactly what we need, whether that's encouragement or conviction. We pray that, that you would give it, that we would respond and not just be hearers of your word, but doers. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Keith, that was impressive, buddy. That was, that was excellent. Uh, you know, I thought I was, had the, the audible, the audio book, you know, and it was, it, was, it was nice, man. The Dwell Bible app, you need to be one of the readers on the Dwell Bible app, you know. It was, it was great, man. Uh, we needed like a crackling fire behind you, though, you know, to really, maybe we could do a set design or something one day and just have the crackling fire for Keith to read a scripture. Um, I love it. Um, so we're at the end of... Daniel. The day has finally come, and we thought there'd be no better way than to read 60 verses um, before we proclaim it. Um, but if, if you were with us last week, then you recognize that Daniel 11 is right in the middle of, of a unit. So Daniel 10 is the beginning of the unit, and then Daniel 12 finishes. It's the last big unit of the book. It's one scene. In Daniel 10, we learn, uh, Dan if you remember, Daniel was touched by an angel. You remember that? Okay, so Daniel was touched by an angel three different times. Um, it was an interesting chapter uh, that, that challenged us in a number of ways, but the final, this angel who's speaking with Daniel, what we learned at the end of Daniel 10 is that he's about to share with Daniel what is to come for his people. And Daniel 11 is that message, what is to come for Daniel's people. And then in Daniel 12, it, it finishes it. The chapter divisions are sometimes helpful. Oftentimes they are not helpful for us. Uh, just because it switches to chapter 12 doesn't mean something new is happening. The angel is still speaking all the way until verse 5. And then in verse 5, if you notice, then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. We're back to that original scene from the beginning of Daniel 10. So if you go back to Daniel 10, right, right at the beginning of that, in verse 4, it says, on the 24th day of the first month I was standing on the bank of the great river that is the Tigris so so Daniel 12 at the very end of it we're brought all the way back to where Daniel is so in Daniel 11 this this vision this this revelation of what is to come for the people of Israel is given this angel speaks he gives a monologue he speaks the entire chapter and then four verses into chapter 12 and then we're back to the story we're back to Daniel um on the banks of the Tigris River, and then he has this experience with these angels, and he's given counsel. Here's where I wanted to close off, not only, you know, Daniel 11 and 12, but our entire journey through the book of Daniel. I want to take us back where we started, and that's in Psalm 137. So if you would, turn with me to Psalm 137. The book of Daniel is set in the city of Babylon. The people of Israel have been taken into exile by King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of the empire of Babylon. 
Daniel was, was one of those exiles who, were, who was brought in, and Daniel 1 through 6 is essentially his biography. We learn all about Daniel's life from the time he was a teenager until he was in his 90s. Um, we learn throughout that process that Babylon did not stay in power, that the Persians eventually came in and defeated the, the Babylonians. And then we even learn in, in chapter 7 and chapter 8, as the book shifted from narrative to apocalyptic literature, we learn what's going to even come for the kingdom of Persia. The Persians are going to be overwhelmed and overcome by the Greeks. And the Greeks come in. And then we have this look into the glorious future of what's going to happen at the end of time. But as, as Daniel is in Babylon and as, as other uh, Judeans were in exile, Psalm 137 was their song. So, so let's, let's look at it together. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung up our lyres. For there, our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. So you see the scene here. You have the Israelites, and they're not in their land anymore. They're not in Jerusalem anymore. They're in Babylon. They're in exile. The Lord has judged them for their failure to keep the covenant. And they are in mourning, they are weeping, and so now their captors, these Babylonians, they are mocking them. Sing your songs. Sing the songs that you sang when you were in the Holy Land. Go ahead, sing them for us. Just this mocking that happens. And then verse 4, this honest, deep heart question. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? That's the question. For the Judeans who were in exile. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How can we? They're mocking us. They're making us sing. And they ask themselves, how can we sing the Lord's song if we're not in the Lord's land? We have no reason to sing. And if they have no reason to sing, what that means is they have no hope. They have no reason to hope. So how can we sing? And we've, we've kind of framed our entire journey through this book, seeing ourselves as exiles, living as, as pilgrims, living in a strange land, that this world is not our home, and that we are longing and we were made for a home where the Lord is ever present with us, the fullness of his presence is with us. We're longing for that place. We're longing for a land that belongs to us, and yet where we live now, this is not our home the place we live now is marred by the darkness and the stain of sin and suffering around every corner and persecution and pain and some of us know this world all too well so we're asking ourselves as we've walked through this book how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land how can we have any hope in this strange world that we live in where it is marred by sin and suffering and persecution and where we are promised even by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to suffer? How can we sing while we suffer? How can we sing in the pain? Um, I actually had an atheist friend years ago uh, who, who mocked me when uh, my, uh, my cousin died in a tragic plane crash. And, you know, we were wrestling with it. I mean, we, we really were wrestling with how God could allow something like that to happen. And, and I mean, it's not, it's not something that you ever just get over, you know, when, when a life is just taken in that way, knowing that God is in control, knowing that God is sovereign. I think you, I think you wrestle with some of those more intimate, personal questions for a long time. And I remember this atheist uh, friend of mine, I say friend, <laughs> acquaintance of mine, um, just mocked me because I, I just, I made a comment about singing. We can still sing. We can still sing and how singing serves our hearts and serves our grief and helps us mourn well, knowing that we can still hope, you know, and this atheist just laughed at that. And I, I remember one of his comments, he said, Your call to sing 
is just a way for you to ignore the fact that there actually is no God who's in control. What, what's at the heart of his question or his, his mocking, his comment is he cannot see how you can have any hope beyond death. There is no hope. There is no hope, so you cannot sing. You're just trying to cover up the fact that there actually is no God. How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Daniel 11 and 12 gives us three answers. Three answers. How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? The first answer is because God is in control. Because God is in control. The second answer, our future as God's people is gloriously bright. That's how we can sing the Lord's song in a strange land. Our future as God's people is gloriously bright. And, and finally, the third answer How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Because God has purchased rest for his people. Because God has purchased rest. So God is in control. Our future is gloriously bright. And and God has purchased rest for his people. We're going to break this passage down into three different sections. All of chapter 11, the first part of Daniel 12, and then the last part of Daniel 12. Um, Daniel 11. All right. Now... Daniel 11 is one of those chapters I was actually reading in a commentary where one guy said, I actually do not recommend pastors to preach this chapter. Don't preach it. It's just not, it's not preachable. It's something that you might could, could, you know, study in a Bible study. And I remember I, I, like I initially, initially in my early study of Daniel 11, I, I laughed at that and I was like, how could you say that there's a part of God's word that should not be proclaimed? And, you know, I got a little self-righteous with it. I got to be honest. I was, I was really, really uh, mocking this guy in my own mind. And then I started reading it and I started studying it. And I at least, bare minimum, came to the realization he sort of has a point and I kind of understand what he's saying. And here, here's what I mean by that. In order for us to walk through every single one of these verses, we're going to have to also, in order for you to fully appreciate what's going on here, we're going to get out a history book, you know, a Cambridge book of history, and we're going to walk through this time period in the history of the world so that you can see just how well this prophecy is fulfilled. I mean, person by person, kingdom by kingdom, king by king, even these arranged marriages that we read about here. I mean, we have the names of the people that were involved in all of this. I mean, it, it plays out perfectly. It is this magnificent prophecy that is fulfilled in Scripture, so much so that I can actually understand why so many liberal scholars refuse to believe that this book was written, you know, in, in uh, the 500s B.C. There's like, there's no way this was written, and it had to be written in the 200s B.C. It had to be written in the 100s B.C. There's no way that they were able to prophesy all of this because it just fits so well. We're not going to walk through all the names and all the fulfillments and all that stuff. We, we just, we don't have time for that. I, if any of you are interested, I have tons of books where we could look through some of those things together. So what I'm going to do is give you a basic summary of this passage. And there's just one overarching uh, theme or idea that Daniel 11 shows us. And it's that God is in control. And so what we should do while we wait, while we wait in a strange land for the end, is we should trust God because he is the one who's in control of the unfolding events of history. Okay, so we have this angel who is speaking to Daniel, and this angel in Daniel 11, he outlines the next 400 years in the Middle East. The next 400 years. From the time of the kingdom of Persia all the way through the kingdom of Greece. And even at the very end of Daniel 11, probably there's some debate, some disagreement until the end of time. So, so this angel gives Daniel the few, he's saying, hey, I wonder about, I'm wondering about my people. You remember in Daniel 9, Daniel's praying on behalf of his people. Even in Daniel 10, where Daniel is fasting and mourning on, on, uh, uh, on behalf of his people. And so he's wondering what's going to happen. The angel gives Daniel the story of his people for the rest of time, essentially, in, in big picture. So let's, let's summarize this really quickly. The kingdom of Persia is summarized in Daniel 11, verse 2. One verse for the entire reign of the Persian Empire. 
which is one of the most remarkable empires in the history of the world if you look back on it. One verse, summarize verse two, and now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. That's it. That's actually half a verse. Half a verse for the rest of the Persian Empire. You see this in, at the beginning of uh, chapter 11. We're reminded of the context. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. We believe that Darius the Mede and, and uh, Cyrus the Great are the same person, the first ruler of the Persian Empire when they conquered Babylon. And so from that point until the mid 300s, so 200 years, uh, the angel says, or, or summarizes that for us in one verse. So you have the, the kingdom of Persia summarized in one verse. So the Persians are going to be in power, and here's what's going to happen. Then you have Greece coming on the scene. And, and the angel gives a lot of time to the kingdom of Greece, verse, from verse 3 all the way until the end of chapter 11. We believe that um, uh, Greece is referenced. So he begins with Alexander the Great. Which, again, this is, it, it, it blows my mind. Alexander the Great is one of the most fascinating rulers in history. Um, if, any of you guys that have Disney+, Plus, if you, if you hate me now and you want to leave the church because I like Disney+, Plus, then I'm so sorry. We can talk later. But if you have Disney+, Plus, there's the Nat Geo part of that, National Geographic. And there's this, there's this show where it talks about searching for the lost tomb of Alexander the Great. It's, it's really interesting. It gets into some of the history of it. But Alexander the Great was a fascinating ruler. Here's the attention that the angel gives to Alexander the Great, who's one of the most formidable and powerful rulers in history. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. That's it. That's Alexander the Great. Verse 4. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken. I mean, people spend and give their entire lives to studying Alexander the Great, and they're digging up all this archaeology, and he was so fascinating and so powerful. And, and here we go, two, just a drop in the bucket, a drop in the bucket of, of the history of the world that God is wielding, okay? So, so Alexander the Great's mentioned in verse 3. Verse 4, if you remember some of this, some of this was mentioned back in Daniel 8. Daniel 8 and the vision and how, how that played out with the little horn, with the little horn that, that comes later with uh, Antiochus. We're going to see that in a minute. Okay. So Alexander the Great in verse 3. Alexander's four generals in verse 4. So when Alexander the Great died, he died when he was really young, uh, kind of mysteriously. But when Alexander the Great died, his kingdom was divided uh, amongst his four generals through a lot of fighting and, and politicking. But uh, four generals became the rulers of different regions of the kingdom of Greece. And so you see it here in verse 4. Um, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to, not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. So what that's saying is none of Alexander's children, no one in the line of Alexander became a ruler, and that's what happened in history. It was his four, four generals that, that took his place. Okay, so we're just four verses in, and we're all the way from Persia to the end of Alexander the Great in, in the course of history. And you got to remember, all of this is prophecy, okay? This was, this was given to Daniel in 537 B.C. Alexander the Great died in the 330s B.C., so 200 years later. This, this, is all, this is all prophesied, okay? The bulk of Daniel 11 is given to the kings of the south and the kings of the north. Did you notice that, that language throughout? The kings of the south and the kings of the north. The kings of the south refers to Egypt, Egypt, and the kings of the north refers to Syria. Here's how we know that. Syria is north of Israel, and, uh, and Egypt is south of Israel. And so everything here is focusing on these kingdoms in relation to God's people in Israel. Okay, so there's so much more that, that, you know, happened, obviously, or that could have been prophesied about the kingdoms of Persia and Greece and how that all unfolded. But all of this is in relation to the glorious land or the beautiful land, I don't, depending on what your translation says. From verse 5 all the way until verse 20, we're given this, this synopsis of, of, it's not a synopsis, it's a prophecy, but, but we can view it as a synopsis of the wars that happened between Egypt and Syria. So we have this dynasty in the south, the kings of the south in Egypt called the Ptolemy dynasty. Okay, the Ptolemy, that's spelled really strangely, P-T-O-L-E-M-Y. 
And so they were constantly at war and fighting against the Seleucid dynasty, which was in Syria. So you had the Ptolemies and you had the Seleucids fighting against one another for hundreds of years, fighting against one another. And they're both Greek, okay? So, so the Greeks are in power in Syria, the Greeks are in power in Egypt, and these, these, two, these two Greek kingdoms are fighting against one another over, largely, over the land of Israel. So, so the wars over the Holy Land, they, they go back a long time. So you have, you have this fighting that happens in, in verse, from verse 5 to verse 20. It talks about how all of that uh, lines up, how all of it plays out. I mean, even the arranged marriages, I mean, everything. We have the names. You can look at the history books and find how all of this stuff filled out or, or was fulfilled. But the second, largest, the second largest section is given to one person. Given to one person. So not a dynasty of kings. Not kings from different countries, but it's given to one person. From verse 21, and I would contend all the way until verse 45, this angel prophesies about Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV. If you look in verse 21, in his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by Flatteries. So as the Ptolemies and the Seleucids are fighting, 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 fighting from one ruler to the next, and they're fighting over the course of hundreds of years, eventually, eventually, one of the Seleucid kings, he, he had a son, he had two sons. The younger son was Antiochus. Antiochus was actually exiled in Rome. Okay? And through flattery, through flattery, Antiochus was not a rightful heir to to the Seleucid dynasty. He wasn't supposed to be one of the kings in Syria. However, through, through uh, you know, a lot of flattery, he ends up working his way in uh, through some assassinations. Um, he ends up working his way in, and Antiochus IV, who nicknamed himself Epiphanes, which is God made manifest, he arrives on the scene. He becomes this prominent figure for the people of Israel because he is the one who will torment them more than anyone else. And this was prophesied in the 530s B.C. It's, it goes all the way down at least to verse 35. At least to verse 35. Some would say all the way to verse 39. I would contend there, there isn't enough of a shift um, for me to say with certainty that at verse 40 it shifts to the talking about end times things. Um, but it may. But the majority of this passage is referring to Antiochus the fourth. Um, Antiochus was a terror. We're not going to revisit all of that. We, we discussed it when we, when we looked through Daniel 8. Uh, but Daniel's learning once again, once again, that his people in the future, even after they've returned to the promised land, because you've got to remember, at this point in time, Daniel knows his people are already back in the promised land. But he's given this vision once again, your people are going to be heavily, heavily persecuted. Okay, what can we take away from this this? magnificent prophecy that is fulfilled in history. Evil and suffering will continue in the world until the end of the age. Evil and suffering will continue, but God will remain in control. Through all of it, through all of it, God will remain in control. Because what you notice here is that First of all, first of all, you have this amazing prophecy that is fulfilled in almost perfect detail. I mean, almost perfect detail. There are like two blips where we're not exactly sure what's being referred to. But, but in almost perfect detail, this prophecy that is fulfilled. So God is telling Daniel what's going to happen hundreds of years before it actually happens because he is the one who wields history. He is the one who is providentially sovereign over all of history and the unfolding events of history. And that includes evil and suffering. So evil and suffering continue in a world where God is fully sovereign. Now, we could get into the philosophical discussion of, of how that works out. At the end of the day, there's, there's a lot of mystery as, as to how God, God is sovereign, intimately sovereign in a lot of ways, and allows evil and suffering to continue in the world. Um. But, but here's a simple takeaway for you. If, if this is kind of, you know, mind-blowing a little bit, a simple takeaway. 
think something we struggle with is a lack of control. We like to control our lives. And so whenever we spiral into worry and, and even sometimes self-destruction or self-destructive behaviors, it's because we wish we could control our lives better. Here's a freebie for you. Here's a freebie. There isn't a single thing that Daniel or anybody throughout the, the time period that's prophesied here can do to change the events that transpired. Okay, there's not a thing they could do to change it. So since we can't control how the world is going to unfold, we cannot predict the decisions that our government is going to make that will directly impact us. All right, and we can, we can vote. We can do our best to vote. But at the end of the day, how much control do we really have over that process? We have no idea which nation's going to attack, attack another nation. We have no idea how the world is going to unfold. I hope it's also a little humbling to you to see that in the course of, you know, 200, 300 years, you have these dynasties that are completely gone, completely gone. I mean, you know, obviously it was like 2,000, 2,500 years ago, and so we can look back and say, oh, yeah, that was so long ago. But I think that a lot of us think that America is going to be around, you know, for eternity, there's no guarantee of that. I mean, you just look at history. There's no guarantee of that. I mean, there was no one more powerful than the Babylonians. Oh, here come the Persians. Oh, man, the Persians are going to last forever. Here come the Greeks. The Greek, oh, the Romans. You know, our country's not even 300 years old. So I say all that to say we can't control how the world is going to unfold, so we must depend on the one who providentially works in the world and in the world events to fulfill his purposes. We must depend on the one who is in control, in control of the unfolding events of history. God alone is worthy of our ultimate allegiance. God alone is worthy of our ultimate allegiance because God alone will not pass away. His kingdom is the only one that will never pass away. The Persians passed away, the Babylonians passed away, the Greeks, and eventually the Romans. But God's kingdom is eternal. So, so place your ultimate allegiance and your ultimate hope in him because he's the one who is sovereign over all of history. Okay. The second, the second way that we can Sing the Lord's song in a strange land is to realize that our future is gloriously bright. So I think Daniel 12 encourages us to hope in God because of this glorious future. So look with me at the beginning of Daniel 12, the first four verses. So after walking through uh, this prophecy of, of probably Antiochus IV and possibly possibly the antichrist um could go either way on that we have at the beginning of, of verse or chapter 12 at that time shall arise michael the great prince who has charge of your people and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time but at that time your people shall be delivered everyone whose name shall be found written in the book and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Okay, so no matter, no matter how deeply you end up understanding or digging into the history and the fulfillment of Daniel 11, what we can say simply is that the future of God's people from the time of Daniel is going to be marred by suffering. Okay, there's more suffering and more persecution is to come. And what we can say for ourselves is that as we move forward in our lives, more suffering and more pain and possibly more persecution is to come. Okay, that's, that's what's awaiting us as long as we're living in this world is pain and suffering and persecution. The people of God are not immune to the sinful nature of this world. And so Daniel learns here in deep detail that suffering and persecution are going to continue for his people. It's not going to end when they return to the promised land. It's going to continue down the road in the future. And if we do view the last few verses uh, from 40 to 45 of, of Daniel 11 
as, as looking forward to the time of the Antichrist, then we can very clearly say for ourselves that there is persecution coming, there is suffering coming. We know what awaits us in this world. So how can we sing the Lord's song? How can we hope? Verse 2. Verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. Daniel learns that there is a glorious future awaiting his people, awaiting God's people. And he grounds that into what would have been a new, newer, definitely not very well-developed concept, the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the dead. Daniel learns that his people one day, no matter what happens to them in this life, no matter if they are living at the time of Antiochus and they suffer slavery and brutal death, And no matter what happens to you and I moving forward, we can be sure that as God's people, one day we will be raised from the dead. And those of us who are God's people, we will be raised to everlasting life. And this is something that we always forget to emphasize. We always talk about what happens when we die at the intermediate state. We glorify the intermediate state where we die and we're in the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is that one day in the future, after Jesus returns, we are going to receive glorified bodies. There is going to be a resurrection day when our bodies will be raised and we will have bodies again, but bodies that will not perish. Imperishable bodies, glorified bodies, perfect bodies. We will receive a new and perfect body. So one way you can hope as your body fades as you, as you grow weaker, as you grow older, you don't look the same, you don't feel the same, you're weak, you're sick. Your great hope is that one day God's going to give you a new body. He's going to give you a brand new body. So it's not just that one day we're going to be floating around as spirits just singing songs, you know, in the clouds. We're going to be walking on the ground in the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to be walking city streets. We will have glorified bodies. So as whatever happens to us, no matter what people do to us, they can kill us, they can behead us, they can do whatever they want to our bodies now. This is not what we are ultimately hoping in. We are hoping in and longing for the day when Christ returns and we receive new and glorified bodies. But it's not just those who are going to receive eternal life that are raised from the dead. If you noticed, some are going to be raised from the dead for everlasting shame everlasting contempt and this should give us pause that those in our city who don't know the gospel when they die it's not just that they go to hell one day one day when we are raised and we receive new and glorified bodies and we receive eternal life those who don't know Jesus those who haven't trusted in Jesus they are going to be raised as well but they are not going to be raised to eternal life they're going to be raised to eternal torment and eternal contempt and eternal shame so may that short word in daniel 2 um, energize us to take the gospel to those in our lives right now that we know don't believe and don't know Uh, one thing that that longman said about this passage which which i thought was encouraging he said though prospering in the present the wicked will get their due And though suffering in the present, the godly will get their reward. God will see to it. So, another side of that. There are evil rulers in this world who who are like Antiochus, who who reject God, who, who torment people, who are just evil. There are people in our world who are just evil, and they wreak havoc, and they seem to get away with it. In the end... God will see to it. He is a just God. He will see to it. And every wicked ruler, every wicked leader, every wicked person will get their due. And and God will see to it. 
Some will be raised to everlasting life, but others will be raised to everlasting contempt. No one at the end of the day will get away with evil. It will either be suffered in this eternal torment or it will be suffered by Jesus on the cross in our place, which we receive by faith in him. Okay, so we'll be raised from the dead. But do you notice this too? I hope this kind of awakens your imagination a little bit. It's not just that we're going to receive new glorified bodies. We can kind of picture that. Do you know what he says of you? As God's people, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. One day, you and I will shine like the stars. Can you picture that? We will shine like the stars because we will one day share in the glory of God. We won't just be uh, witnesses to the glory of God. We won't just be seeing it and watching it. We will be participating in the glory of God. We will be the glory of God. We will be perfect image bearers. We will be perfectly imaging God's glory everywhere in the new Jerusalem and in the new heavens and the new earth. We will shine like the stars of the heavens. That's the future that awaits you. So no matter how dark your life is right now, if you're in Christ, your future is literally gloriously bright. You are going to one day shine like the stars of heaven because you belong to the God who wields history for his purposes because of what Jesus ultimately would do for his people, for you and me. So a couple takeaways here. We can sing the Lord's song in this strange land because we know deliverance is coming. Every painful drop of suffering in this life will be swallowed up in the sea of glory that awaits us. So keep waiting. Keep waiting. Keep holding on. And if you're struggling with sin, and I know you are, because I know I am, keep fighting. Keep resisting. Keep enduring whatever this world throws at you because the end of your story is eternal blessedness and eternal peace and eternal joy. So no matter how hard the road may be from here on out, the end of the journey is worth whatever we must endure. The end of the journey is worth whatever we must endure. If you're in Christ this morning, no matter how difficult, no matter how sorrowful or painful your life is today, I can actually, because of Daniel 12, promise you, I can promise you that your future is gloriously bright. Your fading body will be replaced. Your sins forgiven. And not just forgiven, but eliminated. You and I are going to shine like the stars of heaven. So don't give in to little sins now. Okay? Don't, don't fade away in your faith because you suffer. This is, this is a temporary darkness that we're in. This is not our home. And in our home, we will shine like the brightness of the sky. So hope in God. Hope in God because your future is gloriously bright. Finally, uh, one final encouragement from the book of Daniel. Uh, one final reason that, that we can sing the Lord's song in a strange land is that God has purchased rest for his people. So, rest in God and keep living. My favorite part of the book is Daniel 12, 5 through 13. It's my favorite part of the whole book. There's so many cool things in it, but this one hits me. So after this, this overwhelming revelation of what's going to happen, even like three and four hundred years into the future, and, and even after Daniel learns that one day in the future, um, I'm going to receive a new body. I mean, there's no way he fully understood what all of this meant. And so he's overwhelmed once again. And in verse 5, we return to the scene. They're by the Tigris River. And I know we probably can't imagine this well, but Daniel's standing there talking to multiple angels. There are angels around him talking with him. And so we read, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? That's the question we all have, right? 
We're cool with waiting. We know we got to wait. We, we can hope. We can't wait for it. When is it going to happen? Another way, the psalmist always asks that question, how long? How long, O oh Lord, will this suffering endure? Uh, I love the answer. And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. Verse 8. I feel this so well. I heard, but I did not understand. That's me right there. A time, a time, and a times, and half a time. What? What? I hear you. I hear you. I don't understand. I heard, but I did not understand. So then here's what Daniel says. So I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? Like, give me something concrete. Give me something clear. I want to know. I want to know exactly what's going to happen. I, know, I want to know exactly when it's going to happen. And the answer, I love it so much in verse 9. He said, go your way, Daniel. Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand but those who are wise shall understand and, and listen it gets even more convoluted and from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up there shall be 1,290 days blessed is he who waits and arrives at different number the 1,335 days and then here's what he says to Daniel don't worry about all these numbers oh, I love it he, didn't, he doesn't say that, but he essentially says that. Don't worry about all these numbers, but go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. I need this word so much. Daniel wanted to know, just like I do, when all of this would happen and what the outcome would be, but instead of receiving an answer, he receives some wise counsel. Go your way till the end, Daniel. What does it mean to go your way when you are so uncertain about what the future has for you? How can I just go on about my life when so much is uncertain about my life? How, how can I just go on about my business and, and, and be ordinarily faithful to God when there is so much pain in my life right now? There is so much worry in my life right now. Here's how. You rest in God. That's the answer. How can you keep on living your life and just being ordinarily faithful where no one notices, it's completely mundane, and you're just being faithful to God day in and day out? How can you do that when your life is so painful and when the future is so uncertain? You can only do that if you're resting in God. So, here's my encouragement to you. Rest in God first because God has worked, not because you have. You're not resting from your work. You're resting in God's work on your behalf. The glorious future that awaits you and me and Daniel is due to God's work and not ours. God will bring about the end in his own time, and we don't have to know when that's going to be for it to happen. Okay? God's not dependent on our knowledge of the future to bring about his desired end of all things. So I know this might not be what you're looking for when it comes to prophecy and it comes to the end times, but don't worry about it too much. Don't, don't worry about it too much. You know, Christians and denominations are divided and they're at each other's throats even on, on how the end is going to unfold. And Daniel's given three different kinds of numbers here and no indicators of what they mean i think there's something instructive here for us there is a set and a certain end when christ is going to return but we may never ever be able to comprehend when that's going to happen actually i can say with certainty you're not going to know you're not going to know so don't worry about it instead 
rest in God because it's God who has accomplished the end. And it's God alone that will bring about the end in Christ. So rest in God because God is the one who has worked. The only reason that you have a gloriously bright future is because of what God has done for you. What does he say at the end of verse 1? At that time, your people shall be delivered. Who will be delivered? Everyone whose name is written in the book. It's all based on God's sovereign choice of his people. So rest in God because he's worked, but rest in God because it frees us to live faithfully no matter what comes. When you rest in God, when you're resting in his work on your behalf and your worth is caught up in what he says of you and what he has done for you, it frees you to work for holiness from a place of, free, like from a place of freedom. When you're resting in God, you work, from holy, you work for holiness, you work for obedience, you, you are faithful to God, and you do that from a place of freedom, not, not from a place of trying to earn God's favor. This means that you will see suffering and persecution as instruments to make you more like Jesus. You can't be knocked off course by whatever this world has to offer, because whatever this world has to offer only serves your sanctification. Whatever Satan throws at you, However much pain you endure, however much suffering you endure, it serves your sanctification. What does he say in verse 10? Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. So any amount of suffering or persecution that comes your way only serves your sanctification, which means that every evil and every bad thing that comes your way is only making you more and more like Jesus. That totally transforms how you look at evil and suffering in the world. But you can only do that if you're resting in God and you're viewing everything, every good and every bad thing is filtering through God's sovereign hand and knowing that all things work for the good of God's people, even if it doesn't seem that way in the present. Finally, rest in God because we will one day stand in God's presence forevermore. This is the hope of Daniel. The book of Daniel, the person of Daniel, and this is the great hope of our lives. Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Cyrus the Great, Alexander the Great, Antiochus Epiphanes are dead and buried. They're dead and buried. They're awaiting a resurrection, but, but, but they're dead and buried. Their kingdoms fell into the hands of another and then another and then another, and now they are no long, they're nowhere to be found. But Daniel's hope has always been in that fourth kingdom from chapter 2 and chapter 7. It's always been in that fourth kingdom, that kingdom of God that destroys the rest of the kingdoms, the, the kingdom of God, the only kingdom that's left standing. Daniel's hope is in the God who is ever-present, unconfined by the temple, the God who is with him even in exile. Daniel's hope is in the God who will one day cause Daniel to stand in a glorified body at the end of this present age. So since Daniel will one day stand in God's presence forevermore, he can rest even now as he works for God's glory for the rest of his life. Daniel can rest in God now because he knows that one day God is going to cause him to stand. Look at, look at verse 13. But go your way, Daniel. Go your way until the end. And you shall rest and stand in your allotted place at the end of the day. So my encouragement to you, remain faithful. It matters. It matters. Keep plodding. Keep plodding along in ordinary steps of obedience. Keep taking steps. Keep being faithful. Blessed is he who waits for the end. Because Christ has come. We can wait for the end with hope and with joy, and we can sing the Lord's song in this strange land. Um, we're going to transition to the Lord's Supper. Our hope, our hope in future resurrection is completely based on the broken body of Jesus that he took back. So Jesus came, and in the table, uh, in the Lord's Supper, we remember this. We, we remember and we celebrate what Jesus has done for us, that his body was broken, and we, we recognize that through the bread, and his blood was shed, and we recognize that through the cup. Because Jesus died and rose again, 
We have hope that one day, though we may die, we too will rise again and we will be in his presence forevermore. And we long for that day, even at the table. So uh, as we come and take the elements and go back to, to our seats and we pray together, be mindful of that. Be mindful of what Jesus has done for you, what Jesus is currently doing in your life and, and use that as an opportunity to make confession of sin. And then also take this opportunity to long for this day that Daniel was given a, just a mere glimpse of that we have secured for us because of what Jesus has done. Uh, you don't have to be a member of Trace Crossing to take the elements. You do have to be a Christian, okay? So, so you have to be a believer in Jesus in order to, to take the, the elements. Um, what we do here at Trace is we come and we get the elements. We, we take them back to our seats, and then we just pray together as friends and family. I'm going to pray over us first, and the way that we're going to come get them, we'll start in the back with the back rows, and then each row forward will come. So let me, let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word. We pray that you would use it to conform us to the image of your son. Father, we, we pray that you would help us to better hope in the future that awaits us, and we pray that you would help us to go our way now and to continue being faithful, continue living faithful lives for your glory as we wait for that day. Father, help us to remember that you are the one who wields history. You are the one who is in control, and help us to trust you even when we don't understand. As we come to the table now, help us to remember Help us to reflect. Help us to long. Help us to long for your second coming. That day when you will bring us to yourself where we will receive new bodies and we will be with you forever. We long for that day when we feast with you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.